Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series of the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is Clem. I'm one of the editorial fellows this year. And today we are interviewing Michael Berry, the director of the Informed Medical Decisions Program in the Health Decision Sciences Center at MassGen Hospital and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He is one of the members of the USPSTF task force that put out an updated recommendation statement on the use of aspirin to prevent cardiovascular disease this year. Dr. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, and thanks for helping us spread the word about this new recommendation on aspirin. It's a pleasure to have you. We have interviewed members of all sorts of different guideline committees and task forces on this show. What is the guideline process for the USPSTF, and how might this differ from some of the other guideline committees? Well, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force makes preventive recommendations for clinicians and the people they take care of across the United States. And we focus on evidence-based recommendations for interventions like screening, preventive medications, and uh, behavioral counseling. We're a group of 16 volunteers uh, supported by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, ably supported, I should say. And we've been making these recommendations going back to the 1980s. Wow, that's awesome. Who are the different members and what sort of fields they represent? We're a group of 16 volunteer experts in primary care and preventive medicine, well used and experienced to taking evidence into recommendations. We're appointed by the director of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. We serve a four-year term after being selected. So basically four members generally turn over each year. Occasionally members go on to the leadership team. I'm currently vice chair of the task force. One serves two years as a vice chair and then a year as chair. So, but again, that's all buttons up over the number 16 members. And that's our focus. Great. Thanks for that overview. And over what time frame are these guidelines made and updated? Well, we like to readdress our guidelines every five years or so, because often new evidence will come along and it's important we incorporate that into our recommendations. Our process for looking at either a new recommendation or updating an old one is first to develop a research plan, a set of key questions that will drive the evidence review behind the recommendation. It can take uh, several years for that process from the research plan to coming out with a recommendation. Part of that is that we're very transparent about the work we do. So the research plan, once developed, is posted for public comment. Anyone, clinicians, patients, can make a comment. We take those comments seriously. We develop a final research plan. And then our colleagues at an evidence-based practice center supported by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality go about doing the systematic review behind the key questions that we've agreed on to get to a recommendation. We then hear that evidence presentation. We digest it as task force members and develop a draft recommendation, which again is posted for public comment. We then take those uh, public comments again very seriously and then develop a final recommendation. And that's our process. And again, we're very careful about making sure we don't miss important evidence. And that's one of the reasons the process takes a few years. I think that's what makes this so unique is that a lot of the other guideline process or committees 
don't really have this time for public comment. And I think that that's what makes the USPSTF so robust. I really like that aspect of it. So let's dive right in and talk about these updated recommendations. As a review for our listeners, there was a prior USPSTF recommendation supporting aspirin to prevent cardiovascular disease in those aged 50 to 59 with a 10-year cardiovascular disease risk of greater than 10%. Would you be able to share with us why that recommendation was made back then? Certainly, Clem. I would uh, come back to the reason we review our recommendations on a periodic basis, because this is an example with aspirin where we've got considerable new evidence to bring to bear compared to our prior recommendation. And it's actually let us simplify the recommendation as we approach that new evidence. So let me perhaps just go through our current recommendation and then map out how the prior recommendation has changed. So I'm actually going to start by emphasizing who this recommendation applies to. This is for people at least age 40 and older who do not have evidence of cardiovascular disease, for example, a prior stroke or heart attack. That's not the evidence we reviewed, what we might call secondary prevention, preventing a second heart attack or stroke in someone who's had one. So that's not what this is about. This is about new starts on aspirin for people without cardiovascular disease. And again, I'll emphasize new starts. This isn't about people who are already on aspirin. And it's also not about people who are at higher risk of the major complication of taking aspirin, serious bleeding. So someone who's had a bleeding episode already wouldn't be included. So our current recommendation is that for adults age 40 to 59, who have once again, at least a 10% estimated risk of a cardiovascular disease event over 10 years, generally a stroke or heart attack, our recommendation is those people talk to their clinicians about the pros and cons of taking aspirin for them. And we think it on a population basis, the benefits of aspirin minus the harms, what we call the net benefits, are small at the population level. And the decision whether to take it or not for an individual person needs to be sorted out with their clinician and what we call a shared decision-making process. Now, for people age 60 and older, who again, have not been on aspirin already and don't have evidence of cardiovascular disease, we actually recommend not initiating aspirin for those people. Now, let me just go through the difference between our older recommendation. And I'll say this is driven, as I said, by new evidence. We have a total of 11 randomized trials involving over 100,000 people, and that includes three new trials with almost 50,000 people since our last review. So just emphasizing the importance of looking at the evidence periodically to see what's changed. So previously, let's start with the younger folks. For people age 40 to 49, back in 2016, we said there wasn't enough evidence to recommend for or against starting aspirin. And then for people age 50 to 59, we had what we would call a B recommendation, suggesting that people with, again, higher than 10% risk of cardiovascular disease take aspirin to prevent a future heart attack or stroke. Now, with all that new trial data, including substantial data on people in their 40s, we can simplify that into one recommendation. We now find the evidence sufficient to say that for people age 40 to 59, they should, again, 
talk to their clinicians and individualize the decision about taking aspirin. In other words, the evidence on the net benefit, the benefits minus the harms, is a little bit weaker than it was back in 2016 with all that new data. Thus, the former B recommendation for people in their 60s is now a C recommendation, basically individualizing the decision for all people aged 40 to 59. Now, let's go to the older folks. In our previous recommendation, we had said for people 60 to 69, the decision should be individualized, a C recommendation. And we said there was insufficient evidence for people 70 and older. Again, the new data has changed that situation, particularly a lot of new data for people above age 70. And looking at the current evidence combined with the combination of the old evidence, the new evidence, we actually recommend against initiating aspirin for people age 60 and above. So simpler recommendation now, one recommendation for people age 40 to 59, to individualize the decision about starting aspirin. And then for 60 and older, we recommend against starting aspirin. Perfect. And we always enjoy when things are more simple than they are complex. So, so do we. <laughs> it, should, it, should, uh, it should enable the, the clinicians everywhere to follow these guidelines more appropriately. You mentioned some major trials that led to this change and that amount of evidence has really informed this shift in the recommendations. Specifically, can you mention some of these trials and what those trials found? I'd be happy to. Again, there are three new key trials, all published in 2018, as it turns out, that really inform this new recommendation. And again, we don't make decisions based on a single trial. We integrate the new data with the old randomized trial data. And I should say, although I'll focus on the three new trials, and that's the most important data, we also got further follow-up from some of the older trials and further clarification of the age distribution of people in some of the older studies, like the Women's Health Study, that figured strongly in our uh, prior recommendation. So let me tell you briefly about the three trials that were all focused on looking at the benefits and harms of aspirin in people at higher risk of cardiovascular disease who may stand to benefit more from aspirin. And again, these were all trials of low-dose aspirin. And that was our focus throughout the older and new review. By low dose, I mean less than or equal to 100 milligrams a day of aspirin. I'll start with what's called the ARRIVE trial. It was done in seven countries, a trial of aspirin versus placebo, involving over 12,000 people at a moderate risk based on their risk factor distributions. So fitting our description of the higher risk people in our recommendation. And that trial showed that there was no benefit in terms of cardiovascular disease prevention. And the main thing to emphasize in that trial was that the event rate that they predicted when they were deciding about the sample size was much lower than they expected. And they attributed that to the fact that many other things were going on in the background that fortunately reduced the trial participants' risk of cardiovascular disease. And that's a situation for me to briefly pause. I'll come back to this in a minute when I describe the other two trials, that aspirin is only one tool in the toolbox for reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease. We have other options. So again, the ARRIVE trial did not show a benefit, and I'd emphasize the low event rate. Then there was another trial called ASPRI, 
This was done in Australia and the United States. It focused on older people, basically 70 and older, involved more than 20,000 patients, randomized to aspirin or placebo. And again, in that older population who are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease, but also higher risk of bleeding, there was no benefit seen in that trial and actually a 40% increase in the risk of major hemorrhage. So suggesting for older people that the harms can outweigh the benefits. And that was also the trial that suggested that the risk of gastrointestinal cancers, particularly colon cancer, was actually increased in that trial compared to some of the older data. In the last trial talked about is ASCEND. These were people at least 40 years old who had diabetes. This was done in the United Kingdom. People with diabetes, but without evidence of cardiovascular disease, have been hypothesized to be a group that might particularly benefit from aspirin. There were more than 15,000 people in that trial, and it did show a decrease in cardiovascular disease events of about 12%. That's the relative risk difference, the absolute difference in heart attacks or strokes between the group who got aspirin and who didn't was about 1% in absolute terms. But the risk of major bleeding among those people with diabetes was 30% higher. And actually the absolute increase in the risk of bleeding was about 1%. So basically the, the authors of the study felt that the increased risk of major bleeding about balanced the benefits and there was no difference in GI cancers in that study. So those were three particularly important new studies, again, almost 50,000 new participants. And let me just come back to my promissory note, which the ARRIVE trial emphasized, which is aspirin is one way to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease events, but there are lots of other ways that a clinician and patient should consider in terms of what the real goal is, which is to reduce the risk of future heart attacks or strokes. That would include a statin use for people at higher risk of cardiovascular disease, good control of your blood pressure, control of diabetes, and a healthy diet and lifestyle, for example. Those are all topics that we have other recommendations on. And I'd emphasize considering the whole gamut of interventions we could bring to play to help a person reduce their risk beyond aspirin. Just for comparison, in our analyses across the trials, considering all the evidence, it looks like we can reduce the risk of a non-fatal heart attack or stroke about 12%. Actually, the evidence didn't show a reduction in fatal cardiovascular events or a decrease in overall mortality. But the benefit, say, from statins to reduce risk is more like 30%. So aspirin is one tool and perhaps not the most uh, important one in the toolbox for reducing risk. On the bright side, I think the ARRIVE trial having very low rates of cardiovascular events might tell us that we're doing something right as physicians and preventing cardiovascular disease in, in patients. So I appreciate you bringing up the whole armamentarium of things that we can use to prevent disease for our patients. As you mentioned, this recommendation mainly pertains to new aspirin starts. So can you clarify for listeners what to do with patients who are already taking aspirin, or maybe the task force doesn't really comment on that? It's very important that before people who are on aspirin consider stopping it, 
that they talk with their clinicians to just be sure of the reason that aspirin was started in the first place, which may have been years or even decades ago. Certainly, if there's any evidence of cardiovascular disease, the pendulum may shift more in the direction of aspirin, but we did not review that evidence. For people who have no evidence of cardiovascular disease and have been on this preventively, the decisions about stopping have a different calculus than the decisions about starting. That's because people who started aspirin, say, at age 55, who had a greater than 10% cardiovascular risk, as they've aged, their risk is even higher. And of course, they haven't had any bleeding thus far. So that's a different calculus and why it's so important to talk to their clinicians and not just apply this recommendation to people who've already been on aspirin. Got it. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. You already alluded to this, but in previous iterations of the guideline, there was mention of aspirin to prevent colorectal cancer, but this does not seem to be mentioned in the new recommendations. Can you just speak a little bit about that? Certainly. In our prior recommendation, there was some evidence that aspirin might prevent colorectal cancer incidence and death. And as a result, the task force had previously decided to sort of package the decision about taking aspirin to include both cardiovascular disease prevention and colorectal cancer prevention. Now, the new evidence has made the question of whether aspirin has any effect on gastrointestinal, particularly colon cancer, incidence or mortality much more murky. As I mentioned, the ASPRI trial actually showed an increased risk in colorectal cancer death among the older people enrolled in that trial. As such, we felt that given the current state of the data, that it's best to separate the question of cardiovascular disease prevention and make decisions about aspirin based on the benefits and harms of prevention of cardiovascular disease. Now, I'll rush to say that that doesn't mean there's nothing you can do about reducing your risk of colorectal cancer. We have a recommendation on colorectal cancer screening that shows that if you regularly adhere to one of our recommended screening interventions, you can most likely prevent most cases of colorectal cancer death. So decisions about colorectal cancer screening between clinicians and patients should really focus more on screening than any effect of aspirin. So let's operationalize these recommendations a little bit. As a primary care physician, let's say you have an 80-year-old man seeing you in clinic who asks about taking a daily baby aspirin because a lot of his friends are doing this currently. He's never had a history of cardiovascular disease. He's never had any myocardial infarctions, strokes, peripheral artery disease. What would your conversation with him look like? Sure. In that case, first, I'd congratulate him for all the things he's done to get to age 80 in such good shape. But I would say that aspirin really doesn't look like the right or the best preventive intervention to prevent cardiovascular disease and would sort of turn the conversation to other things he could be doing, perhaps to get from age 80 to age 90, including diet and exercise, thinking about other risk factors that we might modify. And just emphasize that taking aspirin sounds like such an innocent intervention, but there really is a substantial increased risk of both GI bleeding, the most common major bleeding complication, but bleeding into the head, which can be particularly disastrous. And for example, is about 30% higher in people who take aspirin 
and that risk of bleeding gets higher as people get older. Great. Thank you for that. I've had some challenging conversations with my own parents about aspirin and in light of the shifting recommendations, it's been very helpful to hear your thoughts on it and to just get the rationale for the new recommendations. Thank you for coming on with us and really helping us to spread the word about the recommendations. Do you have any final remarks? Well, first, I'll thank you for helping us spread the word and my best to your folks for good outcomes and good decisions. And I'll just emphasize that our new recommendation is in many ways simpler, that for people age 40 to 59 who have at least a 10% or higher estimated risk of a heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years, we recommend they talk to their clinicians about the pros and cons of taking aspirin for them. And for people 60 and older, again, who have no evidence of cardiovascular disease and haven't been on aspirin, that we recommend against initiating aspirin in folks in that older age group. So a simpler recommendation than our old one. And as you said earlier, simpler is better. Absolutely. We agree with that. Thanks, Dr. Barry. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Michael Barry for joining us today to discuss the updated recommendations on aspirin to prevent cardiovascular disease. We're always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at nejm.org. We would also like to form a focus group to get more formal feedback. So if you are interested in participating, please also email resident360 at nejm.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hamnick. Curbside Consoles is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.